Today's episode is brought to you by Why We Quilt, a new book by Thomas Knauer. In a world of same-day delivery, cutting fabric into small pieces and stitching them back together makes little practical sense. Yet the quilting community thrives. In Why We Quilt, Thomas Knauer highlights 40 contemporary makers who share not only their stunning quilts, but also powerful insights into what compels them to keep quilting. So check this book out. It's brand new and it's called Why We Quilt, Contemporary Makers Speak Out. Thank you so much, Why We Quilt. And now here's the show. Welcome to episode 154 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. And today on the show, we are talking about Quilts, Inc. with my guest, Teresa Durya Wong. Teresa has authored two books on Japanese quilts and textiles, and in early 2019, she published American Cotton Farm to Quilt. She currently travels to Japan and throughout the United States to research, write, and lecture. She holds a master's degree in liberal studies from Rice University and in 2014 was named the Faith P. and Charles L. Bybee Scholar by the Texas Quilt Museum and the Bybee Foundation. Teresa is a regular contributor to Curated Quilts Magazine and also writes for Art Quilt Quarterly. She is a passionate quilter and also loves making bags and garments. Next month, she'll debut another new book at the International Quilt Festival titled Magic and Memories, 45 Years of International Quilt Festival. This book shares the story of the history of Quilt Festival and the two women who founded that event. Teresa Wong, welcome. Thank you so much, Abby. I'm just so excited to be here with you today. Thank you. Um, So I want to talk about your new book, this history of International Quilt Festival in Houston, which is a show I think many people have been to or want to go to or know about, um, and about the history of Quilts, Inc. and Carrie and Nancy, who founded that company and the show. But I think in order to get there and to how you came to write that book, we kind of need to trace a little bit of the path that you yourself have taken. So I know that you graduated from Rice and that you spent some time uh, working in the beginning as a journalist. Is that right? Were you at a small town newspaper or at some other kind of publication? Um, I actually uh, have my bachelor's degree from a small university in Houston, University of St. Thomas. And right after that, I went to work Um, as a journalist in television news at the CBS affiliate in Houston. And I worked there for about about seven years. 
and kind of worked my way, you know, kind of up the ladder. And um, I did a lot of jobs. I started as an intern and I eventually became a camera woman. So I was out filming news every day um, and did that for years. And then later I um, came back as an on-camera journalist and was doing arts reporting for them. So then I um, I left um, and started freelance writing and I was doing a lot of journalism and magazine articles. Um, and then I began publishing a fine art magazine um, and I did that for um, 23 issues. So we had a monthly uh, publication covering the fine arts um, in Houston and the Texas region. Um, this was publishing in the days long before the internet. So things were you know very different um, back in those days. And is that and a magazine? I, in, did you found, sorry to interrupt, did you found yes, that yeah. magazine or were you like on staff? No, um, uh, my father and I founded it together and um, started the magazine. And we pretty much focused on um, fine art um, and then later expanded into performing arts as well. So um, it was a lot of fun. Um, and uh, it was, a you know, it was a difficult road, but I think I learned so much about the art world, but also about managing a business, which I, you know, as a journalist had not had aspects of all the, you know, all that side of the business side of running a business as well. So it was a great learning experience. Yeah. And were you quilting at that time or had quilting not sort of fallen on your radar yet? Not yet. Um, so I started, I had been, I had been doing embroidery since I was about eight years old and I sewed garments and clothes a lot all throughout my whole life. Um, so I, I then started, um, I went to work, uh, in the corporate world and I live in Houston. So if you live in Houston and you want to work, you're going to eventually end up in the oil and gas world. Um, so I did that for about, um, a little over 22 years in the corporate world. And I, uh, when my daughter was in elementary school, I met, um, a woman who became, and it still is my very best friend. And she lived down the street and she made these amazing quilts and she taught me how to quilt. And so I think that was around 1998 or 99. Okay, got and it. So that was the introduction. Yeah, <laughs> yes. but it sounds like you were are, like interested in art and in like the visual arts, you know, far Definitely. before that. So you were sort of primed to be interested in, and you were interested in handwork and you sewed. So like the, you know, the introduction of quilting was kind of a natural fit. Yes. And my grandmother quilted. I just never learned it from her. Okay. And so do you remember the first quilt that you made? Oh, yes. And my friend Amy made it with me. And um, it was for my daughter's bed. And as I've done so much research for all my books, um, and I talked to quilters so many times, I say, what was the first quilt you made? And almost half the time people say, oh, I made a quilt for my daughter's bed. <laughs> which I thought was so funny. But my friend also um, took me to my very first festival that almost that same year, 1999. So I've been going to festival for 20 years. And that um, has had a huge impact on just so many things that I've learned and opening my eyes to this quilting world. Yeah. So let's talk about, and we're going to come back to sort of the rest of your career in a minute, but let's talk about that impact because that's interesting. Like you live in Houston and, you know, Quilt Festival, I mean, for people who've never heard of it, because there are people who sort of listen to the show who are outside of the quilting world and for them, maybe they don't know about this show, but um, for people within the quilting world, it is the show, um, certainly in the US, but it's also 
also like worldwide, you know, the show, maybe outside of Japan, there's probably bigger shows in Japan, but other other than that, right? Like it's, it's one of the biggest shows in the world. So kind of explain like the impact of this show, both on your life and also sort of on the, in the, in the world of quilting. Yeah, as you say, it is it is the largest show in the Western world. Um, the Tokyo International Great Quilt Festival in Japan has a larger attendance. Um, they're over 200,000. Um, and the International Quilt Festival in Houston is um, closer to 50 or 60,000 people. But it's larger in terms of what it and, and unique in terms of what it offers. And that is sort of a three pronged. Um, event. And one is the education component. There's no other festival or event in the world that compares to the offerings that you will find at the International Quilt Festival um, in Houston, which is held every week around the end of November, uh, first of, uh, end of October, first of November. The second component they have is obviously the shopping. Um, There's something like um, over a thousand different booths and they're literally from all over the world and the third huge component is the exhibition and the quilts at quilt festival are you know they're just magnificent magnificently hung they're just so gorgeous and there's just it's seemingly thousands of them and it's juried Um, i mean it's not you can't just have your quilt there you have to apply and it's juried to get your quilt hung there well, it's a mix, so the, it's a little confusing, but the very the biggest part of the exhibition comes from the International Quilt Association, or ICWA, and that is a juried, um, highly competitive event. Um, and it's, you know, a competition you enter, and then the jury selects whether the, your quilt will be exhibited, and then they select winners. Um, and those where you get the big winners that, you know, the best of show is a $10,000 check, and, you know, it kind of goes down from there. But there's lots of other exhibits that are, um, some are juried and some are not. So there's um, uh, the Modern Quilt Guild, for example, has done exhibits. Um, there's a lot of exhibits of antique quilts. Um, there are exhibits of guilds who, um, like the state of Texas, will draw the best of the best from their guild shows and put those in. Um, so it's a mix. Um, and it, it's just, a, you know, the SACWA, the Studio Art Quilts Associates, um, do a big exhibit. Um, for years, um, there were um, Jamie Fingal and uh, Leslie Tucker did Dinner at Eight, and that show ran for like 12 years. So, it you know, it's just a lot of different uh, quilts on view. Okay. So if you are, you know, a person who loves quilts, this is your heaven. You know, this is a dream. <laughs> you go, you learn, you take classes, you shop and buy things you couldn't find or source elsewhere and you get inspired because you walk this incredible exhibit and you meet people who are just like you and have a great time just talking to everybody. So it's just this fabulous, you know, sort of experience. And so you yourself have been going to this since the late 1990s when you first learned to quilt. And so if you can just say a few words about the impact it's had on your own life personally. 
it's just it's it's just really hard to describe how impactful and how influential this event is. Um, not only is it like a community, like you said, and a lot of fun, but I I've been to um, obviously the festivals in Japan for many years and many many other festivals in the U.S. And this one is truly international. It's not you know it's not just like semi international. I mean it's like a big deal. So you'll find. St- things and people and vendors and quilts from every corner of the world. Um, And for me personally, this was the very first place um, about 10 years ago that I ever saw Japanese quilts. Um, And I took a class from, um, uh, I took classes for maybe 10 or 15 years. And I took a class from Noriko Endo um, maybe about 10 years ago. And it would, just opened my eyes to this whole other world and this whole other aesthetic um, that I really fell in love with. And um, eventually, uh, when I left the corporate world, went on to write two books um, on Japanese quilts. So So I want to talk about those now, actually. So that's a good, a very good transition. So, um, so right. So it it introduced you to, or open your eyes and broaden your horizons. And that's something that can happen when you go and you learn from the best of the best. And it's interesting to think that, you know, people are coming from all all over the world to learn, but also to teach at this event um, and also to vend at this event. So you're going to be able to discover things you really could not discover at your local quilt shop or certainly at like a chain store. Um, which is really a, a reason for people to to travel and and attend. Um, so you've written two books about Japanese textiles that are intended for an American um, hobbyist audience to consume these books. Um, one of them is called Japanese Contemporary Quilts and Quilters, and um, and this is about you know sort of the interplay between American and Japan uh, and Japanese quilting and sort of the back and forth, right, between um, these two cultures and how quilting um, sort of sort of went from America to Japan and back again a little bit. Am I explaining that right? Or you tell us how, how this, like what this book is all about. Yeah, I think that's a very apt uh, way to describe it. It, you know, the Japanese have a long, long history uh, making textiles and sewing and doing beautiful work with Sasha Ko and Kojin and so many other uh, beautiful stitching techniques, but they learned uh, about quilting in the way we think of a quilt with a patchwork or applique top from America. And that is something that is so interesting to me that, you know, this young country um, would teach an old country with so many, you know, time-honored traditions, something new. Um, but that, yeah, and so I document kind of how that happened starting in the mid-1970s. Um, and I interviewed, you know, dozens and dozens of people um, and heard their stories of how they first learned to quilt, uh, making, you know, American blocks over and over again and until they were perfected. Um, and so I really sort of document that whole journey of how influence can travel from one country to another. And then, as you say, back again, because now it's um, by the 1990s, Japan had very much defined their own aesthetic. It was no longer, you know, an American um, copy, if you will. It was very much a Japanese aesthetic um, in the quilt form. So they brought that back 
over here and have inspired countless of Americans um, and other Westerners like me. So it's a it's a really great story, I think. Yeah. And then, you know, we, I, myself personally, and I think many quilters, um, love Japanese fabrics and the quality of the quilting fabrics that you buy from Japan are is just so beautiful and is really different from the fabric that you get in the U.S. Um, to quilt with. So I wondered if you could talk about sort of that and and why that is and why this incredible fabric comes from Japan. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And that, um, there was so much to say about Japan. So that kind of inspired me to write a second book, which is Cotton and Indigo from Japan. And half of that book is about their very, very old textiles in Japan and how they were made. Um, but at the end, sort of the second half of that book is about the very new textiles from Japan and this beautiful quilting cotton um, that we have from Japan today. And I, I went into the textile mills in Japan, um, which was such such an amazing um, adventure for me. And it was very difficult to get into them I because, bet. yeah, they, you know, they have these um, their their process is really a competitive advantage and they don't want to share it. So um, part of what makes the fabric so beautiful is the finishes that they put on these. And those finishes are very, very closely guarded secrets. Um, but it's, it's the detail that they put into those, the cotton that they start with, um, the process by which they're printing the fabrics, um, which is um, a process called automated flat screen printing. Um, which is very similar to a silkscreen process. If, if, if anyone's ever, you know, drug a silkscreen across a negative and, you know, print it onto a textile. Um, and that process is not the fastest or the cheapest way to print quilting cotton, um, but it's the best. And that's, those are some of the reasons why we have such gorgeous fabric um, coming out of Japan today. Okay, that's so neat. What a neat experience for you to be able to go and 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 have um, in the process of writing those books. And so, for a long time, and and it sounds like you you're still doing this. You have been a lecturer. Um, yes. So you lecture at guilds. You lecture at events um, where quilters gather. And I wondered if you could talk for a moment about what makes for a good lecture because. I think there are quite a few people listening to the show who would like to become lecturers or would like to add lecturing about quilts or about, you know, knitting or about whatever it is that they do to their portfolio and would um, appreciate hearing some tips about what goes into putting together a good lecture. Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. <laughs> um, it's one of my passions, actually. And I I think I, I definitely draw on my experience having worked in television where you have to bring things alive with visuals, um, but also my whole career, you know, I feel like I was working on telling stories and explaining things to people. But I think with a good lecture, you have to tell a story and a story has a beginning, a middle and an end. Um, and a story has to have strong visuals. And I, I just get I get so frustrated because the vast majority of lectures that I go to hear myself are so boring. And I just really would love to help people um, <laughs> make their lectures better. But I think you really have to, um, you have to put a lot of energy in your voice. 
you have to have really strong visuals and you have to think about the most important thing is what is your audience? Who are they? What do they want to hear? It's not what do you want to tell them? It's what will they want to hear that would be interesting for them and then figure out a way to tell that story. Um, and it's not a slide with, you know, 14 PowerPoint bullets on it. No, it's a, you know, a bright, beautiful photo that gets people thinking or inspiring. Um, your job is to talk and tell the story and not ask your audience to read you know, bullet points off a slide, which is one of my huge pet peeves. Um, so I, yeah, I've been lecturing now for, um, I think about four years and I'm now coming to some of my guilds the third time. So I keep getting asked back and, you know, people just tell me all the time that they, they really enjoy that my lectures are casual, but also educational um, and most of all, not boring. <laughs> and I hear that a lot. So I, I just really get a big kick out of doing it. And I just, it's a big thrill for me. I want to take a minute now to talk a little bit about our sponsor, Why We Quilt, Contemporary Makers Speak Out by Thomas Knauer. This is a brand new book that will be in stores very soon. And it's super cool. First of all, it is small in format, um, which makes it really giftable. And it's got this super cool die cut cover that's like a window pane, um, which makes it really pretty. So when you open it up, um, you can see a quilt through the cover, which I love. And inside, there are 40 contemporary quilt makers who are profiled. And some of them are names you are totally going to recognize. Many of them actually have been guests on this podcast, um, including Thomas himself, but lots of other people. Um, Molly Sparkles, who's been on this show. Jen Carlton Bailey has been on this show. So many people. Um, Casey York has been on this show. Lots and lots of people. Amy Friend. Um, and the list goes on and on. Malka Dubrowski. It's like a list of every who's been on the show in the past um, and they talk about what motivates them to quilt and also we get to see um, images of their work. This um, book blends bits of North American quilting history with insights into how mostly women throughout the centuries have used quilts to make political statements, personal statements, and creative statements, which I love. I love reading those stories. From temperance quilts to the AIDS quilt, there is a really rich history of individuals and communities using fabric and thread to connect with others and express themselves. Nobody is better at pulling those stories out than Thomas. So um, he does that so well, and it brings it all together in this book, Why We Quilt. He really highlights themes of tradition, of community, of consumerism, of change, and of creativity. And I think this book is just such a good one to add to your collection if you are a person who loves quilts and quilting or if you know someone who does and just need to get them a super cool holiday gift which the holidays are right around the corner this is ideal so go check it out it's called why we quilt contemporary makers speak out the power of art 
Activism, Community, and Creativity by Thomas Knauer. It will be in bookstores very soon. I blurbed the back, which is super cool. So um, you got to go see that as well. And thank you so much, Story Publishing and Why We Quilt, for sponsoring this episode. And now back to my conversation with Teresa. Yeah, I love that piece of advice around starting with a story. Um, And I think that is so important. And if you can start with a story and then sort of continue the storyline, right? And then when you end, you wrap it up with the end of the story. Like you tie it in a bow that way. Um, It really helps. And, you know, all people, and you think about children, right? Children love to hear a story. Tell me a story, read me a book, you know? And we are still that way. That's how human beings are wired. They want to hear a story. And so if you can tell a story, even if it, it applies really to writing a blog post too, right? Just start with a story and it hooks people. And it's such a good, that's such a good point. Um, Yes. Thank you. It's, it's, and I also love being with the guilds and I think I get a lot of energy and enjoyment from that. I often say that, you know, in my corporate years, I worked for mostly men and, you know, a lot of times my boss could never even bother to say hello. You know, it's just such a different environment. And when you come to the guilds, everyone is so happy to see you and they're so nice and they're such cool people. And we share this common interest that it's just a blast to um, to be with the guilds um, and, and be a part of their events. Yeah. And the fact that you love it really shows as well. Um, I think that's really important. I was working um, as a sixth grade teacher and there was a teacher on my team. I was the social studies teacher, but there was a teacher on my team named Lou who taught English and he had been there forever. He was like really close to retirement and he never planned his lessons. He had nothing on the bulletin boards. (laughs) He like, you know, his room was really spare. And yet the kids during our like, you know, free time would always run to his classroom and they loved Lou and like, we were like, why do the kids love Lou so much? And then it occurred to us one day, me and the other teachers on our team, like the Lou loved the kids, you know, and it was like, he loved them. And that's why they loved him. And I that's always stuck with me. And I feel like if you love the guilds, like you love the people there, it shows. Um, So that makes that makes a difference too. So okay, so you wrote this other book. um, And we're getting we're we're building up here to uh, to the (laughs) the quilt festival book, I promise we're almost there. So you wrote this one other book about American made cottons. And I know, um, you know, with the recent trade tariffs, this became a really big topic. Because people are were quite surprised to learn that, you know, quilting fabric for the most part is the cotton is grown overseas, mostly in Asia, and it's printed, almost all of it is printed in Asia as well, and then imported into the United States. And, um, and that's just the way it is. It's very, it's much more economical. Yet with, you know, the trade tariffs from China, it becomes a somewhat more difficult, although a lot of our, um, 
uh, fabric is printed in Korea and in Japan. So, um, but you wrote this book about American made cottons called American Cotton Farm to Quilt, which is like farm to table. I love that play. So what (laughs) drew you to this topic? Like, how did you find this topic? Because this is somewhat of a departure from your Japanese um, studies. So when I was researching the story of cotton and indigo from Japan, and I was learning about the new quilt fabric that they're making there, I I learned that about 40% of Japan's cotton comes from America. And the reason is because American cotton is the highest quality cotton in the world. And so I went out to uh, Lubbock out in West Texas and talked with farmers Um, And I sort of followed that path and I ended up in this warehouse in Osaka where I had seen the cotton from the farm I had just been on a few weeks earlier. So it's an amazing story. And so when I was out talking with those farmers, I just became so enamored and I thought, I'm going to come back and finish this story. So I decided to come back and really focus on what, so it's kind of a two-part story. And one is the textile industry in the 1900s, so about 1900 till about 1980, when all the quilting cotton fabric moved overseas. And then I talk about what's happening right now. And there are a small handful of companies who are bringing back American-made quilting cotton. And it's, it's, I'm seeing it a little bit more and more, um, but it's a tough road uh, to do that. So I'm I focus on what's happening on the cotton farm right now and why the American cotton is still um, such high quality um, and how technology is changing everything. And then I follow the story of a couple of different companies that are bringing back um, that cotton that's grown in America with fabrics that are made in America. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's interesting. I mean, I spent some time um, living in the Mississippi Delta where there's lots of cotton farms, although there's more of it in Texas, I think, than in Mississippi now. Um, but um, but those those cotton farms are not like owned by family farms the way that they used to be. They're these giant, massive corporations that own these cotton farms. Actually, that's not true. Really? And I'm so, yeah, I'm so glad you said that because I did a ton of research on that. And um, the cotton farms are 99% family owned. Okay. And when I talked to farmers about this, they got so frustrated and they don't understand why this myth keeps continuing. But there are, um, there's a couple of reasons, but um, a lot of the farms are, um, formed as LLCs. So it looks like a large corporation. And it might be that the farm has passed down. And there might be five or six or eight families that are involved in the the farm and maybe one family runs it. So they form these LLCs um, as a way to, you know, as a smart business. Um, And then the recently in the last few years, there's been a lot more investors interested in Um, cotton and cotton farming, but America's row crops, not the same for dairy farms, but America's row crops are still family owned. Okay. Um, And this is a really important point because these are really salt of the earth people who are doing this because um, they love it. Um, And it's a great, great story. Yeah. All right. I need to get this book um, because I clearly have some things to learn. So, and the <laughs> the main company that when you, I mean, you look at batting a lot, right? You looked at yes, like the yes. warm company batting, and then at Clothworks as well. Correct. 
Correct. Okay. So most people, you know, we, we think about our quilts and the quilt top and the quilt backing and our binding, and we really don't spend that much time thinking about batting. Um, but I was so fascinated to learn that the Warm Company in particular, they buy 4 million pounds of American cotton every year. And that is about um, about 7,000 acres of West Texas farmland. So that's a lot of cotton Um, just going to one company. um, And all of that goes into warm and natural. So I went to their factory up near uh, Seattle and learned how batting was made. Um, Hobbs also uses a lot of American cotton. Um, And I think for me personally, 100% cotton batting is the only option. I never use any kind of um, synthetics. Um, But it's a great story about how they're buying a lot of American cotton every single year. Um, and as you mentioned, Clothworks is the owner of American Made Brand, um, which is a line of solids um, that are made um, 100% in America with American grown cotton. So cool. All right, great. Well, that's a neat story. And I think it's um, great that you spend some time working on it and highlighting it. So um, so that book is called American Cotton Farm to Quilt, if people want to go and pick that one up. And so now we here we are. Okay, we are at your new book, um, which is called <laughs> Magic and Memories, 45 Years of International Quilt Festival. And this book is um, basically a biography of the owners of Quilts, Inc., Carrie Bresenhan and Nancy Um, Puentes and um, they are cousins and but they were raised as sisters basically and um, besides quilt festival they also own quilt market um, which is the trade show for the quilting industry and the book actually will be for sale in November at festival but then once festival's over it will be available everywhere like on Amazon and you know everywhere books are sold so that kind of thing so um, if if people want to pick up a copy they can go to festival or wait until right after festival and, and then pick up their copy so um, so I'm wondering how you came to this idea that there needed to be a biography of these two women. I wondered if other people also had tried to write a book like this in the past um, and maybe had less success than you had. I, I do believe that they were probably approached before me. Um, but for, for my purposes. It was two reasons why I wanted to write this book. One was, as I said earlier, I've gone to festival every year for 20 years. And all those years that I had a huge, stressful, you know, um, demanding job, I never let that job get in the way of going to festival. Like there was just no way I wasn't going. Um, And so I, it's, you know, it's just had a big impact on my own life personally. But I also wanted to know what what happened? Why? Why was this event so successful? How did it become so international? How did it become so influential in the quilt world? Um, and, you know, who built it? And I, I had the sort of a, a very special opportunity to meet uh, Carrie and Nancy in person in early uh, 2014, when they gave me this honor um, at the Texas Quilt Museum, when I was doing research And so I got to know them and and we had a nice lunch and I started asking them questions and I just got really enamored with their story. And the more I learned about their story and the more I learned about how many women came along with them in the very, very early days, all of this was done out of love and passion. Um, It was, there was no business plan. There was no 
um, you know, corporate consultants who helped them, you know, drive this thing forward. It was just all done for the love of quilts. And, and it was like a, it, to me, like a missionary zeal. And I just found that fascinating. And I really wanted to find out more and capture all that. Okay. So, I mean, I think it is hard for people, myself included, to totally understand the impact that Carrie and Nancy actually had on building the quilting industry as we know it today. Because, like, I know I didn't fully appreciate it until I read the story in the book. Um, Because we look around, we see all of these fabric companies. Actually, we complain sometimes that there's too much fabric on the market, right? Like there's the, <laughs> yes. the release cycles are too rapid. The collections are too big, right? That's all the talk right now. Like how do we slow this, this train down? Um, but we take for granted that the supplies that we need to be quilters are, you know, plentiful and everywhere. But that has actually only been the case for a pretty short number of years. And it was really brought about in large part by just a few people and women primarily. And Carrie and Nancy were, you know, among those women. So um, that's what this story is. So Carrie and her mother-in-law owned an antique shop together. Um, and that was the beginning. Um, so Carrie, and it's it was sort of fascinating. There's a lot of... Um, kind of a feminist beginnings here very you know sort of feminist renegade uh, and it was not easy the the sort of beginnings of of starting this company um Carrie wanted to buy out her mother-in-law um and and sort of own the shop entirely and was denied a bank loan from multiple banks unless she agreed to have her husband be the co-signatory because they the banks wouldn't do it without a man as a co-signatory, which was against the law. But nonetheless, right. <laughs> um, you know, and she and she refused to to have him be the co-signatory and to and kept you know going from bank to bank until she found one that would um, that would agree to have a woman uh, sign you know be the the only signatory in a bank loan and and it was like the sixth bank or something that that she had to go to exactly and that was 1974 and the equal uh, lending opportunity act had just passed and she still was denied and um, Carrie is um, is formidable and she just wasn't having it it was her business and she wasn't going to have her um, husband sign alone with her. So she tells this funny story that I put in the book that finally she walked to this very small bank across the street from her office, I mean, from her store. And she said she had a chip on her shoulder as big as the Titanic. And she walked in and, you know, basically said, I need a loan and I have a business and I've got bills to pay and I am not having my husband sign before the banker could ever get a word in. And, um, you know, she was successful with them. So um, she she is um, a very determined woman um, and very visionary and um, has done really, like you said, some very remarkable things in this industry. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, again, we take for granted that, you know, it's it's that women are going to be treated a certain way, but this was not the case all you know, and, and this was not very long ago either. So, um, so Carrie um, and Nancy. So okay, so really, 
exhibiting quilts um, on on display was something that Carrie did very quickly. So she um, s- bought this antique shop from her mother-in-law and um, s- made it into a fabric shop, a-, a-, a shop for quilting fabric, which basically quilting fabric barely existed, um, uh, you know. And but but she wanted to exhibit quilts pretty much from the get-go and and had like a- an exhibit of quilts in the shop pretty much the first year. The first, uh, it was 1975, was the first show um, of quilts in her store. Yes. And the store, as you said, it slowly morphed from being an antique store um, to a store that focused on selling antique quilts and to a full-fledged retail quilt shop. Yeah. And it was called Great Expectations. And she ran that store for many, many, many years um, while she was simultaneously running festival and market and all those things. Right. And they started market together in 1981 at, a suge- at the suggestion of a fellow quilt shop owner. Um, and Carrie used, used the show really as a way to teach the fabric manufacturers about what quilters needed and to show them that there was a market for quilting products, for quilting fabric. And she did that by making rules about yes. what <laughs> was going to be allowed to be sold at this trade show. Yes. It was 1979. That was the first market. Okay. And she she had a couple of vendors that signed on um, right away. And once they did, it sort of attracted others. And um, and then she went and told every single one of them that's a cotton-only rule. And meaning you cannot bring any synthetics. You cannot bring any of your plaids or polyesters or, you know, crazy velvets or any of those things. Um, because if you are not bringing 100% cotton prints that I would sell in my quilt shop, then you can't sell them at market. And this was shocking um, to the manufacturers because, you know, they thought they would just have all these women and they'd just sell their usual stuff. Um, And they were um, shocked and um, changed. It sort of brought about this enormous change at the same time and forced them to think in a completely different way. Um, And that, that role was relaxed later. Um, because people began, you know, experimenting with different fabrics. But I think that this rule is an example of Carrie's very unique leadership, because if you were a company that was in the business of running trade shows, you'd never do something crazy like that, because you risk the chance that your vendors would back out, or would be you know, pissed off at you, forgive my bad language, but you know, you wouldn't take that risk. Um, because you want to sell booths and you want your vendors to come and you wouldn't necessarily have that same passion for the end product that Carrie brought to this show. Um, so I think it was a very risky and very gutsy move. Um, and it taught the manufacturers what it, what a quilt shop was and what a quilter wanted um, and had a big impact on, you know, the cotton that we have available for us today. Right. Because you just wanted to have a good yellow Yes. <laughs> and and I wrote in my book that she often says, uh, yellow, we needed the we needed yellow fabric um, in her sweet Texas, a um, little bit of a Texas accent there, um, because there was no yellow fabric in a cotton print, um, because it wasn't popular for garments. 
So um, that was one of the things. They also did not have any dark cotton prints. Um, and when uh, Jenny Byer started the very first collection of cotton prints that was made exclusively for the independent quilt shops in 1981, she had a, a, a whole... Um, selection and colorways and some of them were very dark and they go all the way into the brighter prints and the, at the time the salesmen were appalled they said oh my god we're never going to be able to sell all these dark prints and the quilt shop said oh my god thank god we finally have some dark prints <laughs> so it was um it was a real journey uh to figure out uh, what and sometimes Carrie would call the manufacturer, she said, and she would speak to some of these salespeople and she would say, I own a quilt shop and I want to order bolts of fabric. And they said, what's a quilt shop? Mm-hmm. So, and, and they also assumed that if they knew what a quilt shop was, that a quilt shop wanted small amounts of fabric, synonymous with the way a quilter at home would want small amounts of fabric. So just, it just took a while to connect all those dots um, and really figure out this industry and and how to sell to it. But the timing was so good, right? Because right yes. after that, we, um, you know, a lot of the fabric companies had to pivot because, um, you know, home sewing changed and um, it became less expensive to buy ready-to-wear clothing. Women went back to work. All of this stuff changed. Fabric started to be made overseas more cheaply. All of this stuff happened. And so that old business model um, fell, fell apart, basically. And so those companies, a lot of those fabric manufacturers had to either pivot to quilting and survive or went out of business. Um, and so it was like this great moment, right? Like the very early 1980s of saying like, here is a new business model. If you can latch onto this and figure out how it works, you can keep going and in fact thriving, right? Because between then and let's say the mid 2000s, there was a boom. Exactly. Yeah. It, the 80s were like a perfect storm of of events with all of these fabric manufacturers being forced to move overseas because the mills no longer wanted to really deal with them. Um, it wasn't a price thing necessarily um, or a quality thing. It was because the mills were dealing with this huge international competition and they were switching to synthetics um, and they weren't interested in these smaller orders of quilting cotton. So yes, the manufacturers had to change their model um, and moved overseas. And um, after the first few years of festival, they found a very, very ready audience. And um, the quilting cotton fabric just boomed. Right. And having two shows was actually a really great model, right? Because you you build the consumer audience, the hobby audience, the enthusiastic maker um, through the consumer show. And then you also build to the trade um, by having the trade show. So you kind of have both sides. Um, and so that worked really well too, having them in tandem, having both shows in tandem um, as a business model. Absolutely. And there are two other parts to that. So they also had the exhibit set up um, that you see at festival every year was set up, of course, for market. So vendors could go through there and see all of these, you know, a thousand plus amazing quilts and, and have access to what their customers were making. And so they learned 
um, a lot by seeing those beautiful quilts. And I think, again, going back to the, if you were an event company or a trade show model, you might hang a few quilts at your B2B event, but you would never go to the expense and trouble of hanging exhibits the way Quilt Sync did um, in that space. So that was a huge learning opportunity. But also, just like the festival part, Carrie built in an education component to market very early as well. She brought in business experts to teach um, many of them were women how to run their businesses better, um, how to market, um, how to hold classes, how to teach all of these different things, how to kit up quilts and sell patterns and the education component for the business owner was also a very, very strong component of market. Right. Okay. So this really thrived for a long time. Um, and so that I think that's really a kind of a fascinating thing to see how it how it builds. And, and if you want to know more about it or see pictures of the early days and how it grew, um, it's all in this book. And I'd love to hear about your process of writing this book. Um, so you had this um, relationship with them, you had met them, you had had this lunch with them when you got your award. Um, and I wonder, about the interview process where did you interview them did you go to their homes um you know how many times did you actually sit with them were they together or did you go to see them separately and did you you had access right to the quilts ink archives and what do those actually consist of and what do they look like (laughs) okay first the interviews um I'll be really honest, it took me a long time to convince Carrie and Nancy to let me tell this story. Um, and I kept talking to them and gently trying to persuade them and using all of my uh, powers. Um, and it, it took a long time for them to make the decision to allow me to tell the story. And I think because they they had concerns, legitimate concerns about privacy and um They also didn't think their story was very interesting, to be honest. They kind of thought I was crazy. Um, They just thought, you know, they just did what they did. But eventually I did finally convince them. And it it was a really, really fun and interesting process. So I interviewed them both alone at their home. Um, a couple of times. And then the three of us met more than a dozen times um, at Carrie's home in LaGrange for, um, I would say, almost day-long sessions. And um, I sort of, um, I was the driver. I had this um, enormous spreadsheet and I had everything sort of very well organized. And I would let them know in advance Uh, On our next session, we're going to focus on, you know, these three or four areas. And I tried to kind of keep everything on track and um, try to get, you know, really kind of dig into the why and the how and not focus just so much on the funny stories and things that happened along the way. Um, And it worked really well. I, uh, I take notes on a little tablet and I, you know, can watch and listen at the same time I'm typing. Um, So I just captured everything um, into my computer, um, and then went back and wrote the story. And were there things they were hesitant to talk about? Well, we, we both agreed at the very beginning, not, we weren't going to talk about finances. I, I actually don't think that's very interesting. Um, I, you know, 
in my corporate life, worked in investor relations for years and years and years. And I, I know how to write about that, but I, it's not very interesting for the quilter. I think the quilter is much more interested in um, the story and what happened. So we agreed from the beginning not to get into that. Um, and I was happy to do that. Um, and then, you know, we do, I, I share some bits of, um, of Carrie in particular, her personal life, but, um, you know, there were other parts that I, I helped them, you know, to keep remain private. It was more about the business story and what the two of them did together. Okay. And did they talk at all about secession plants? Am I saying that word right? Succession plants. Um, you know, Carrie and Nancy aren't young women. I know Carrie is a year younger than my mom. Um, so, uh, and I'm 44. So I, she's in her mid-70s. Um, I actually don't know how old Nancy is, but I think she's a few years younger than Carrie. So um, they own the business together. And I just wondered... Um, you know, nobody is around forever. Not that I'm wishing them, you know, ill will or anything, but I'm just wondering <laughs> about, you know, what happens next? And, you know, are, will, are they thinking about selling the show? Or are they going to have their employees buy the show? Or what is what, you know, what's the future hold? Did they talk at all about that? I don't know that, to be honest, I cannot answer that question. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, and it's not something that we spend a lot of time focusing on. I, I wonder, um, yeah. I'm sure that they have plans, but they is not something they're, you know, going to broadcast to me. Right. I know, <laughs> totally. I will say that yeah. I did ask Carrie to be on the podcast um, maybe two years ago, and she initially did say yes and then said no. So, <laughs> so <laughs> Carrie, if you're listening, I would still love to have you on the podcast and um, we'll see. So anyway, um, so, okay. Anything else about the book that we didn't touch on that you wanted to make sure to share? Oh, there's just so much in here. I mean, it talks so much about some of the fabulous exhibits that they did over the year. Um, but I also really highlight several things that, Carrie and Nancy did together that were really outside of festival um, that I think were really monumental and very important uh, for the industry. Um, and I don't know if you have time to get into those. I mean, I can just mention what they are really sure. quickly. Yeah. So one, one was um, defending really um, the American quilts and American history during the Smithsonian controversy in 1992 um, this actually started in 91, 92, when the Smithsonian Institution um, licensed a company to reproduce four quilts from their, um, four very, very historic American quilts from their collection. And the quilts were to be mass reproduced in China. And this set off an enormous um, alarm bells and controversy across all segments of the quilting industry in America the business and the hobbyist as well. Um, and, and many, many people were involved in this. A lot of quilters picketed um, in Washington and there was, a, you know, just a lot of fury around this. But Carrie and Nancy really took a role uh, from the business end of it. And they carried this all the way through to testifying uh, before a committee of the House um, in 1993 and were really instrumental in defending this um, and helping the the American History Museum, which is part of the museum, uh, it's part of the Smithsonian Institution, uh, realized what they had done by 
sort of giving away part of this history and and how the mass reproductions and being made in China really stripped these beautiful historic quilts of their very history. Mm. So that was really important. Um, they took on this project and they were very much at the forefront. And I, I think it's just, you know, they, they did this for the passion and for, for quilts. Yeah. And this cost them thousands of hours of time, cost them money. Um, it was a big distraction, but it's something that they just did. Um, and I'm so proud of them um, for doing this. And I think it's so fascinating um, the way they took this on. And I think that's just one of the many examples of um, their leadership and, and what they were doing in those years. Yeah, that's interesting. Right, sort of um, taking um, taking the the issue of quilts seriously and the issues of American quilters seriously, and um, you know, w- without that voice, right, it just goes. Yeah, it, it, it just it just things just happen, and and there is nobody to speak, you know. So yeah, and it could have they could have just let it go and let right. someone else do it, you know. But they really stepped up, and I think it, I think everything they've done is really their whole careers is for the love of quilts and, and for the love of the women who are making these quilts and that they be recognized. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, taken I think ser- and taken seriously. Yeah. And taken exactly. Seriously. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. I think that's really yes. important. Great. So, um, uh, Teresa, I want to make sure we get to your list of recommendations because you, you do have okay. <laughs> a few to recommend. Um, it sounds like you just recently, after a long period of going back and forth, got yourself a long arm machine. So, um, good for you. It's a Bernina Q24. Yes. Yes. And I'm just loving it. I had no idea it'd be so much fun. Um, and my, I think I've just, I was so ready to do it and I just I feel like it's freed me in so many ways and I'm just really really loving it. It sews like a dream. And you probably had to like rearrange all the furniture in your room to yes. fit it cuz they're big. <laughs> I can't believe I made it fit, but I um yeah, I have I, I have a large bedroom that I turned into a studio and I had to take out a lot of furniture that I probably didn't need anyway. And now I feel like my studio looks so professional. It's just machines and a cutting table and a large um, shelf with fabric. And it just looks awesome. There's no um, hodgepodge of other furniture and shelves and desks and junk in there. Mm-hmm. Right. So okay, your recommendation is take the plunge. Yes. And you know, I have I had a, a another Bernina that's a, the 820. That's a sit down quilting. And this the long arm, I think because it's a single purpose machine it just sews so beautifully um there's nothing to distract it from doing its main job um it doesn't do buttonholes and it doesn't go backwards and um yeah it's just really really cool and really fun and you've also taken on a giant embroidery hand embroidery project that is a four and a half foot tall zebra um, and I yes. saw a picture of it. It is really amazing. It's based on a photo. Correct. It's based on a photo. And I printed the photo out onto fabric at Spoonflower and um, covering it. I'm just using the photo as a guide. And I'm covering it with sort of this um, kind of stab stitch folk art like embroidery. Um, and it's going to be awesome. Um, and it's really interesting in this day and age because it 
it's like, it's going to take me so long. It's not something that Instagram followers are going to be interested in because they're going to long forget about it. <laughs> but I love it. And um, yeah, it's just, it's going to be really cool. All yeah. black and white with a little cream and gray. I hear you. I've been embroidering this Haptic Labs um, map of Boston. And it's like, uh, you know, doing the main streets and the waterways was like pretty fast and Instagram worthy and all was well. But now I have to do the side streets (laughs) and they're all white. (laughs) So it's white on white. And it's like thousands of side streets. It's like yeah. I might be done in 10 years. And yeah, yeah. definitely not Instagram worthy. It's, it's like so uh, ther- therapeutic, though, you know, just to sit and do that. Really yeah, love it. Totally. And it's nice because it's like I can it's it, it just like put it on my lap all through the winter. So it like keeps me warm and I just sit on the evening and like stitch, stitch, stitch all the side streets. So it's all good. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's all good. But um, all right. And then um, you also wanted to recommend um, you're doing some research on minimalism and um, you've been reading uh, some writings of Donald Judd, it sounds like. Yes, I have. And I went to his um, home slash studio in New York. We go to New York a lot. um, And I was just so inspired. And um, of course, I've been to Marfa since I'm a Texan where he has this huge um, foundation out there and a lot of his sculptures ended up out there. But I'm I'm fascinated with minimalism. I, I think that Um, my quilting is probably my maximalism outlet and the rest of my life is very minimalist. My home is very minimalist and I just love it. And so I'm, I'm preparing a new lecture for QuiltCon um, in February on minimalism. Yeah. In art and architecture. And I will tell you that I'm, I'm going to feature heavily in that the quilts of Carson Converse and she is um, the real deal and I'm just enamored with her quilts and her art and her aesthetic. Um, and um, yeah, she's, if you don't know of her, you should look her up. I feel like her quilts should be um, in the Met or the MoMA or the Whitney. And if I have anything to do with it, I will, I will help them get there. Um, and she's not a friend of mine. I have met her and I had lunch with her. I just emailed her and said, I just really want to meet you. And so we met last year at QuiltCon, but I just, I'm just... I know that there's a lot of minimalist quilts out there, but there's none like hers. Okay. Um, and so, wow. Yeah. I haven't really, looked at them. Really... I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to go look them up. That's awesome. Um, and she was she at, amazing. yeah, she was at QuiltCon. And I think she's, I think she's teaching this year in February, Carson. Sorry if I get that wrong, but yeah, I think she's teaching there this year. Wow. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. Um, well, Teresa, thank you very much for taking the time to be on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much, Abby. It was wonderful. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. And when you become a member, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow craft professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. So join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Today's episode was brought to you by Why We Quilt a new book by Thomas Knauer. The new face of quilting is vibrant, artistic, compelling, and expressive. 
Why We Quilt gives voice to the growing movement of makers who are reclaiming the craft of quilting, ensuring this art remains relevant and vital well into the 21st century. Why We Quilt by Thomas Knauer is available for pre-order now and in stores October 15, 2019. Thank you so much, Why We Quilt. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.